through. My name is Don Slack. I'm one of the second year pulmonary critical care fellows. Um, this talk is based on a patient that I ran into when I was on pulmonary consults. I got a call from Dr. Robinette very early in the morning one morning and said, uh, I got a call in the middle of the night. I'm not even on service, uh, but you need to go up to the LRU and see this patient. And so I went up to see this patient. I don't remember who my attending was at the time. And I got up there uh, and it was actually for a patient who had presented to straight to the LRU from an outside facility in status asthmaticus. Um, and she received a whole cocktail of treatments over the course of her outside hospital stay that was very brief in all, as well in the, in the LRU, uh, including ECMO, obviously, hence it made its way on the list there. Um, and it really kind of stuck with me. I gave a brief talk on the ECMO part of things last year, and I'm sort of going to extrapolate upon that now um, because of sort of the variety of treatments that she received, some of which um, was up front and some of which was actually after she was already intubated. So without further ado, I do not have any disclosures since this is being recorded. Um, so, uh, so for the case, so she's an 18-year-old African-American woman with past medical history of asthma uh, who presented to an outside hospital with uh, status asthmaticus, probably due to a viral URI. She swabbed positive while she was here uh, and probably due to her marijuana use, which we found out later. Uh, in the outside emergency room, she received uh, the, the sort of standard cocktail that you would expect, nebulizers, steroids, uh, non-invasive ventilation ultimately. Uh, IV magnesium. She actually was placed on an epinephrine infusion, which is not uh, necessarily an everyday occurrence. Her pre-intubation blood gas was 7-1-61-97. And after intubation, an hour later, her post-intubation gas was worse at 691-188 and 3-53. At that point, they called the intensivist uh, who came down and evaluated the patient. Uh, I'm not exactly sure of the time frame because this is all from outside records, but uh, in their note, there was a couple quotes that I put here. Um, from different aspects of their recommendations, which was 6 cc's per kilo tidal volume, uh, increased flow, long E time, set respiratory rate uh, of uh, mid-teens, and large doses of sedation. These are all sort of straight from his note. And may need neuromuscular blockade, so it not be, had not been paralyzed at that point. There's not enough change in her pH for that. For that. No, I agree. So, so the degree with which that's, cali I mean, how well calibrated their machine is, I don't know. Whether she was on bicarb or not at the time, I don't know. I mean. So, so, right, so I agree, but this is what's recorded. So um, you can, I did not call them and ask them to correct their blood gas, but this is what's recorded on the chart. Um, and also not the topic of today's presentation. <laughs> so I can only say that to Dr. Cowan behind, when, I'm, when there's a giant pillar between the two of us. So, um, so. I'm going to regret that statement later. Um, so, uh, all right. So, so the things that she did receive. So, or excuse me. So, um, moving on. So, she was ultimately so a call was placed to Express Care, uh, who uh, hooked them up with the LRU. They actually sent an away team to go cannulate her in the outside facility, and so she was cannulated there and brought straight to the LRU here, where she was put on a four-gram uh, IV mag Q4 standing uh, orders. Solumedrol, ketamine infusion, propofol, presidex, continuous NEBS for many, many hours for the first 24 hours, uh, as well as ultimately Heliox uh, in the first 24 hours as well. Uh, she was uh, recirculated sometime in late day one, early day two, and ultimately decannulated and then extubated on day four. And it was actually in the sort of day three and day four time frame when we were consulted and made aware of her presence in the LRU. So in sort of looking at this in, in semi-retrospective uh, set of eyes, you know, she received epinephrine infusions at the outside facility, was placed on ketamine uh, as in hopes of having some bronchodilatory effect. Um, ECMO circuit, or, or more importantly for her, was extracorporeal CO2 removal, or ECOR. 
and then a heliox mixture here as well. The things that weren't used up front that may have been considered were a neuromuscular blockade. She was put on that in the sort of throes of ECMO, of course, but then um, uh, inhaled anesthetics were also something that I did not see any mention on the chart, but we often sort of talk about in these refractory cases. So, do you have the capability to do that here? Of what? I'm sorry? Uh, uh, inhaled anesthetics, because it's actually the exhaled gas that's a problem. So, you yeah. need special recirculators. Do we do that here? I've not seen it done in my time here, so I, I'm assuming we can, but I, yeah, I think they bring up the actual anesthesia machine. Yeah. So um, the topics for today, uh, and I'm going to very briefly go over uh, the physiology of an asthma exacerbation. Um, I was telling my co-fellows earlier, I'm going to preface this with, I'm going to embarrass half the room by how simplistic I make this and the other half by, by how much more I should know about this. Um, the uh, adjunctive treatments uh, uh, used in refractory severe asthma, and then just talk a little bit about what actually evidence is out there, what do the guidelines say about these different adjuncts that she was or wasn't given during her stay. So I'm going to start at the end actually, uh, and this was a paper out of uh, a journal in the 1980s, quite a while ago, in post-mortem analysis of patients that died due to status asthmaticus. And what uh, the sort of post-mortem analysis suggests is that the reason these patients were dying was because of widespread mucosal wall edema and gross mucus plugging contributing to the overall airway narrowing picture. That was sort of the, the, what was present on pathology at the time that they felt uh, contributed mostly to the patient's respiratory failure. The physiology behind this is, is still being explored, but there's a lot of different pathways that sort of interconnect, and I'll show a picture here next. But essentially, it has to do with increased eosinophil activation, mast cell degranulation, goblet cell, both hyperplasia and also uh, hypersecretory uh, mechanisms, basement membrane thickening, and then uh, sort of a, a chronic and acute component of smooth muscle hypertrophy and hyperplasia in bronchial walls, as well as constriction. So here is the diagram for those visual learners in the audience. So starting at the top of this cascade, essentially you have an antigen presenting to the system, um, uh, interacting with and, and ultimately triggering mast cell uh, degranulation and as well as a cytokine cascade, including interleukin-4 and 5, inducing histamine and leukotriene release, inducing bronchospasm, as well as activation of ultimately neutrophils and eosinophils, and, and uh, cascading down to an acute uh, inflammatory process that also can sort of activate TGF-beta and contribute to um, smooth muscle uh, remodeling in the airways as well to sort of contribute to the overall sort of chronicity that we see in the sort of persistent asthmatics uh, in that pop particular population. So on to the treatments uh, for this, and I wanted to go through that briefly just because, you know, the rationale behind why some of these treatments have been used in the past and why we think they may make a difference plays a role in, in or those mechanisms play a role in those particular targets uh, for therapy. So the first one I'm going to talk about is epinephrine, it's probably because, uh, or the reason I wanted to talk about it first is because it's the oldest on the list, I think, uh, and probably uh, something that I've seen used intermittently over the course of my time as a resident and a fellow, um, and, and mostly out of the emergency room. So the rationale behind this is uh, you have both alpha and beta agonist activity. The rationale behind the alpha agonist component is, is a, a little bit uh, shaky, but it's as follows, and it's that in the, the pulmonary vasculature, you will promote some degree of vasoconstriction, hopefully improving the pulmonary edema and the uh, hypersecretory mechanisms that are contributing to sort of an airway filling process. If you combine that with the beta agonist activity of epinephrine, albuterol, and so on, then maybe we can get sort of the best of both worlds of, of uh, vasculature vasoconstriction and a bronchodilation, ultimately hopefully improving uh, overall airways resistance. 
So there was a group that actually looked at that specifically, the alpha agonist activity component of this. Um, back in the 90s in the European Respiratory Journal, they looked at the effect of phenylephrine, so like a thousand to one uh, alpha versus beta activity uh, in that particular drug. Uh, they picked 18 adult asthmatic patients with no coronary, no, excuse me, no coronary disease and no hypertension because they were about to give them phenylephrine infusions and they didn't want to have any issues to deal with. And what they did is they broke them down into three groups with a control group that they didn't mention where they found them or what criteria they met. Um, sort of mild intermittent asthmatics that were currently asymptomatic within the previous 24 hours, so seemingly well-controlled patients. Then you had your mild intermittent asthmatics who had been symptomatic with sometime within the last 24 hours, so sort of this middling group. And then you had the severe persistent asthmatics with a low FEV1 at baseline. No patient could have been exposed to bronchodilators in the 12 hours leading up to the study. And what they did was they gave them increasing doses of phenylephrine infusions and monitored airways resistance in, uh, uh, over the course of the, the uh, infusion time. And this was actually over the span of minutes, not hours, um, that they did this. This is a busy slide. I'm not going to talk about all the, the groups. What I would like you to look at, let me see if I can close this, is uh, pictures uh, one and three here. I guess groups one and three, um, sort of two ends of the spectrum. So it's interesting that they had actually uh, reciprocal changes or uh, compared to each other with regards to increasing doses of phenylephrine or, or increasing alpha agonist activity. So the mild asymptomatic group actually had a paradoxical increase in airways resistance, and the severe persistent group actually had sort of what you would an have anticipated based on the previous uh, mechanism discussed, a decreasing airways resistance. And the thought behind this was, well, these guys don't really have the group one people have sort of a mild intermittent picture at baseline. They haven't been you know, recently uh, symptomatic. They probably don't have a lot of edema and, and hypersecretory mechanisms uh, at an increased level at this particular moment. And so uh, giving them an alpha agonist is probably not going to improve much. In fact, you may only get the small component of bronchial uh, smooth muscle constriction with that um, out of proportion to the improvement in the pulmonary edema versus the severe persistent group where they may have a lot of sort of the inflammatory milieu uh, active in their particular system at that moment. And so improving their whatever airway edema or mucosal secretions may be going on, you may get an overall benefit um, in that particular group. So, so not the cleanest data, but does, and one could actually interpret this and say that, you know, alpha agonist activity in the uh, asthmatic presenting to the ER may be difficult to sort of, you know, rationalize the use of that particular drug because you don't know exactly which of these two reactions you're going to get unless you know exactly where they sort of fall on that particular spectrum of disease activity. So, so epinephrine, um, again, back to the sort of alpha and beta agonist activity, largely preceded albuterol, um, or at least I should say uh, inhaled uh, albuterol. Um, there's uh, oral and IV, um, I guess, ways to administer albuterol that I hadn't run into until uh, earlier this year. Um, there's a lot of small data sets out there for epinephrine use in the setting of uh, asthma and status asthmaticus. Mostly emergency room literature, it splits itself between the adult and child population. There's not much uh, of anything of substance published in the last 25 years that I could find. The large, uh, uh, the large bulk of it is all case series type of, of information and sort of retrospective chart reviews of patients that were exposed to epinephrine in the ER with the chief, the principal diagnosis of, of status asthmaticus or, or even just a, a, a asthma exacerbation. Most of which does not seem to suggest that there's either any benefit um, to uh, admission rates or length of stay if they were exposed to IV epinephrine. And that was independent of whether they received albuterol or not. So the patients that only got epi treatments or if they got epi on top of the albuterol, there didn't seem to be a difference in terms of adding that drug. 
And what a lot of the literature has looked at uh, is sort of the the adverse events that come along with it, right? So part of the, the rationale of the benefit of albuterol over epinephrine is you get the isolated beta agonist activity, maybe do away with the alpha agonist activity that may have more cardiovascular, cerebrovascular complications or potential complications. They listed some of them there, up to 30% of minor events and 3% serious events associated with that. So again, not much uh, of substance out there for quite a long time on this. And the guidelines sort of reflect this. So uh, GINA in 2015, their guidelines state that IM epinephrine uh, is indicated in addition to standard therapy for acute asthma associated with anaphylaxis and angioedema, but basically not for other asthma exacerbations. ATS uh, 2009, they've had a number of documents on asthma since then, but none addressing asthma exacerbation or severe asthma exacerbation. They make actually no comment uh, on the entire topic. So the next uh, sort of part of her cocktail that she received that I'm going to talk about is Heliox. So this can be our helium-oxygen admixture. This is often delivered in a 70-30 or an 80-20 mix. Here I've seen 70-30 used. The rationale behind this uh, is as follows. So for those of you that remember your Reynolds number calculation, I just sat in on an Evans-Todd lecture over in the medical school and went through this all over again. Um, so it has to do with uh, uh, predicting the presence of turbulent flow. And, it, and it's correlated, or it's um, directly proportional to the diameter or the radius of the airway and the velocity of the gas or liquid flowing through that, as well as the density of that gas or liquid. And the reason that we believe helium may improve work of breathing and maybe drug delivery to the distal airways is because if you lower this density, changing, uh, basically exchanging nitrogen, a heavier element for helium, you can promote more laminar flow. So two sort of twofold mechanism, hopefully both reducing work of breathing uh, with laminar flow and then also in theory better delivery to the distal airways of whatever nebulized substance you're trying to deliver. So I'm going to sort of talk about those two aspects of this. So there's a lot of um, sort of uh, non-clinical, or I should say, um, uh, you know, not in the emergency room or critical care literature sort of bench science about this. Uh, and what they've done is they've taken particulate, uh, inhaled particulate matter, mostly Teflon and a couple other particles like that, um, inert substances, and either tagged or untagged for ventilation scans that they want to do after the fact. And they've done a whole slew of different mechanisms about how they deliver or the type of breathing that the patient's doing uh, to these different substances. The, f the first one that I picked is uh, sort of a small aerosolized particle, uh, two microns in size. This particular group um, published their work in 2004 in the Journal of Aerosolized Medicine, which I didn't know was real. Um, until this particular talk. They used an 80-20 mix of Heliox uh, or Rumer, and they found a more or less what I thought to be similar deposition in the airways of their uh, aerosolized uh, drug, um, but however it met statistical significance based on their calculations. Um, the Heliox, however, so, so this was not, they did not do a ventilation scan after this, so they don't know whether it was deposited in the proximal airways or the distal airways. All they said was, you know, concentration in greater than or less than concentration out, so they got something in there based on, uh, or a little bit more so with Heliox than Rumer. So to suggest that maybe there is something uh, to giving Heliox to deliver these nebulized substances. So the next two groups, and I'm just going to sort of breeze through these quickly, used again small Teflon uh, particles tagged with technetium and did ventilation scans on these patients. And uh, the first study found less deposition in the proximal airways. The next study found uh, more in the distal airways. 
The long and short of it is, I found probably about 10 papers that came to completely different conclusions based on the length of the breath hold, whether it was tidal volume breathing, whether it was vital capacity breathing, whether they did two breaths versus one breath versus breathing for five minutes versus the flow rate of the gas. None of them came to the same conclusion, which leads me to believe that the, the, the benefit of Heliox, at least based on what we can find, may be due more to the work of breathing aspect than the actual drug delivery itself. So, so at the bedside, so independent of you know, these ventilation scans and whether drugs get in there, do the patient feel better after they get Heliox or not? And so this is what this meta-analysis is looking at. So this is out of Allergy and Immunology, Immunology in 2014. And this was looking at both peak expiratory flow and admission rates in patients that got nebulized albuterol. This is adults and children, by the way. Um, they got uh, nebulized albuterol delivered either by Heliox or oxygen. And what they concluded, based on their uh, meta-analysis of, of these uh, seven different articles, was that the peak expiratory flow had a statistically significant improvement um, in heliox versus oxygen, and as well as st a statistically significant reduction in admission rates. Um, again, if you sort of look back at the, the sort of data that I was just presenting, uh, I suspect, if anything, it may have more to do with the work of breathing aspect of things than the actual drug delivery itself. And the other thing to sort of note about this is that all of these papers were looking at severe asthma presentations only. So this is not the mild to moderate group that comes in the door and gets sort of your, your typical neb or shoot or two, or maybe a small dose of steroids and, and goes home. This is only in the severe uh, asthmatic presentations that they were doing this. In fact, if you look at meta-analysis that includes articles in which they did mild or moderate uh, asthma presentations in the emergency room, this data doesn't hold up. So not quite the patient population that I was looking at, however, because she received Heliox after she was already intubated. So what kind of data is there for that? There is essentially nothing. Uh, it's, it's very uh, minimal out there. The, the largest paper I could find was from CHEST in 1990, so 26 years ago at this point, in which they had all intubated patients for um, status asthmaticus, uh, and they were all already receiving an epidrip steroids uh, aminophilin infusion and were already all paralyzed. And they had seven patients who got Heliox if their blood gas was uh, persistently acidemic uh, with a PCO2 greater than 50 and a PAO2 greater than 60 uh, and a peak pressure of greater than 75, which um, they didn't talk much more about their ventilator settings, but I found that to be a pretty profound number. They were excluded if they had a pneumonia or if basically they were already improving after an hour on the vent. So their conclusion um, some of you may know who this guy is. So, so what they found was that within two and a half minutes, the peak airway pressure reached its nadir. So it took basically no time at all to see if they were going to respond to Heliox. So, you know, one of the things I thought about with this was all of the hours we have put patients on Heliox to see if they make a difference or not, or if they get any better. It may only take minutes actually to make that determination and not spend the sizable amounts of money we do to see if they're going to improve. Um, the mean reduction in peak, uh, peak pressure uh, was 33 centimeters of water. Um, the mean Heliox treatment duration was 6.3 hours, and all seven of their patients magically got better in 24 hours and were extubated. Um, and so, for those of you that don't know, I'm an ESPN junkie, and this is a recurring character in a Hotels.com commercial called Captain Obvious. Uh, basically, they love their drug and they love their Heliox, and they're going to keep using it, was their conclusion. So, the guidelines. Um, currently, uh, Gina in 2015 stated, there is no role for this intervention in routine care but it may be considered for patients who do not respond to standard therapy. However, availability, cost, technical issues, et cetera, should be considered. The latest ATS guidelines on the subject state that there might be some benefit to its use in patients with severe asthma before intubation as a means of avoiding intubation, 
that there is currently insufficient evidence to support its use in intubated patients. I think that's a, of the two statements, I sort of tend to favor the bottom one. Uh, there's really not much there to suggest that the intubated population, especially if you're talking about work of breathing in someone who's on a, on a ventilator and paralyzed, I don't really know what you're trying to buy there because the patient's not working to breathe at that point. And, I, and the, what I was able to find, again, didn't really suggest that drug delivery is improved. So, so ketamine, the next uh, sort of drug that she was exposed to, um, I've seen this used a number of times as well in the setting of status asthmaticus, um, derived from PCP in the 1960s. They were having a good time. Um, PCP wasn't cutting it, I guess. Um, so uh, the first report of a bronchodilatory effect was in 1971, and it's been used intermittently since then. So the rationale behind ketamine, uh, it has a pretty potent uh, muscarinic uh, acetylcholine receptor antagonist activity. Uh, so it has basically an anticholinergic effect. There's been a number of cell studies, uh, sort of bench science studies, looking at whether there's any antihistamine effect or the inhibition of nitric oxide synthase, some of the other mechanisms by which we think airways might dilate, uh, and that really hasn't panned out. In fact, they've done studies in which they stripped epithelium completely off of these cell lines and still had a bronchodilatory effect. So it probably has to do more with an anticholinergic effect than anything else. So does it work? Um, there's two studies that I'm going to talk to you guys about. The first one uh, was published in uh, the Annals of Emergency Medicine in the mid-90s. Uh, this was a prospective double-blinded placebo-controlled trial uh, that initially inclu included 53 patients, which I'll talk about in a second, whittled down to 44, uh, all of adult age. Half received ketamine, half received a normal saline, bolus, and infusion. All patients had a history of asthma and came in with a chief di uh, diagnosis or principal diagnosis of acute asthma exacerbation. They all, uh, in their, in their re uh, researchers' minds, basically failed. Um, three albuterol NEB treatments were weren't improving, and then received steroids, O2, and then were put on continuous NEBs after that. And then they were randomized either to a ketamine bolus, uh, followed by an infusion, or a normal saline um, therapy as well for three hours. So the reason it was whittled down to 44 was because the first nine patients, uh, after the first nine patients, three of them had a severe dysphoric reaction. So they broke the code on those first three patients, or on the first nine patients rather, and all three were exposed to ketamine. And their bolus was initially 0.2 mg per kg. Uh, and it was a pretty quick reaction that those patients had, so they adjusted their, uh, in, their bolus dose rather, but to 0.1 and did not have any further issues with the dysphoric reactions they had seen in, the, in those three patients. So they included the 44 that uh, were enrolled thereafter in their statistical analysis. <clears throat> What they found in those 44 was that there was no difference in the rates of adverse reactions after the bolus was adjusted, of course. However, there was no difference in any of their metrics, so respiratory rate, peak expiratory flow, FEV1, Borg scores. The physician rating of treatment success on a scale of 1 to 5 had no significant difference between ketamine and normal saline. However, patients really liked ketamine more than normal saline. <clears throat> so, so if we move to a model where patient satisfaction scores you know, affect our reimbursement, I'm just putting it out there. The ketamine may. Oh well. And if they're already on heroin when they come in, then it may challenge things. Yeah. So, yeah. We we could do that Baltimore study. So, uh, so the next study actually comes out of the pediatric literature about 10 years later. So ages 2 to 18. Again, 68 patients whittled down to 62. Not for the same reason, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, Acute episode of wheezing uh, is what brought them into the ER. They did not require a prior diagnosis of asthma due to the age group. All received, sounds awfully familiar, three NEB treatments and then steroids. They were looking at a primary outcome of a 
greater than two, greater than or equal to two point reduction on the pulmonary index score, which I'll talk about in a second. And secondary outcomes were disposition, home versus hospital, and what level of care. So this is the pulmonary index uh, score calculator, basically taking into account the respiratory rate, the, their degree of wheezing, their IDE ratio, accessory muscle use, their oxygen saturation. You can see there's some subjectivity to this. Scores greater than eight uh, indicate a moderate or moderate to severe exacerbation and met their criteria for enrollment. And to eliminate inner observer bias, only the PI enrolled patients, which I thought was an interesting way to get rid of bias. Uh, and <clears throat> then once enrolled, the patients received continuous NEBS and the ketamine actually at that initial dose that that old trial used, um, and they did not have any of the issues that the, the old group had. Um, but they were not allowed to get any other treatment, so they were on continuous NEBS and ketamine for two hours and they couldn't be touched, was basically the, the protocol for this. So the reason that uh, these patients, these 68 whittled down to 62, was because um, of the arm that received ketamine, four patients uh, were excluded from the trial during that two hours. Half of them, so two of them, got worse and needed intervention, and the other two actually got better, didn't need NEBS anymore, and went home. The same ratio held true actually for the normal saline group. So they only had two patients that fell off the trial, but one got better and one got worse. So the, <clears throat> the investigator calculated the pulmonary index scores at 0, 30, 60, 90, and 120 minutes, monitored their vitals. Again, I just discussed why those six patients didn't continue on. And then I thought this was kind of amusing, so I just included it here. The PI made a guess as to whether they were getting ketamine or normal saline during their treatment, just as a, a, to keep himself entertained, I guess. Uh, and he was only right about 60 to 70% of the time. So I thought it would have been much higher than that, but apparently not. So, um, so this is what uh, came of that particular uh, set of patients. So, the, so the, the group on the left here is all the patients that received ketamine. All the patients over here received the normal saline infusion. The dot or the black square is their initial score, uh, and the line denotes where they wound up after their two-hour treatment session. So on average started off at roughly 10 on the pulmonary index score uh, and improved by 3.6 uh, in the ketamine group and 3.2 in the placebo group. And it was not a statistically significant difference between those two groups. So what do the guidelines suggest based on data such as this? So again, Gina makes no recommendation. Seems like only one of these group every couple years decides to make a statement on this stuff. Uh, and then uh, from ATS, they said that the use of ketamine and propofol might be preferred over other sedatives. That's basically um, expert opinion um, with not a lot of substance behind that statement. So the inhaled anesthetics. Um, there is not much, in, uh, as best I could tell, I did not find any sizable randomized trial on the inhaled anesthetics in the setting of status asthmaticus. What there are a lot of are case reports, case series, and um, unlike some of the other uh, treatment modalities that I just went through where there's a lot of mixed data, I've, I noted a, a significant difference that virtually all of them noted an improvement in patient status when they were put on an inhaled anesthetic versus some of these other treatment modalities. So while there's not been any sort of large randomized trial looking at this, because you can imagine it would take forever to recruit for that type of trial, um, <clears throat> at least the data that I was able to find seemed to consistently note a trend towards improvement for these patients when they finally did decide to pull the trigger and put them on it. So this was an example basically that I just pulled uh, from the data that I was able to find. So this is a case series out of a single center uh, in the, the mid-90s in, in chest. 
three patients had been intubated for status asthmaticus. Um, these are the patient's last numbers prior to being put on inhaled anesthetic. It was isoflurane in this particular instance. So their last pH was 7, their last PCO2 was 120. <clears throat> and you can see the other numbers there. Those are the ones that I thought were most appropriate for this particular. There's some other differences here, like some fairly sizable tidal volumes probably based on um, the subjects but compared to what we might use now. But by and large, those were the metrics, that, the numbers that they had. And this is what they found was, and, and I, I, I want you to take away from this more the trend than the actual numbers, which is why I didn't put any of the other sort of details or information about this picture. It's just that they had a fairly substantial improvement in their intrinsic PEEP uh, measured on the after infusion of, excuse me, inhalation of isoflurane. And this is after two hours, by the way. Uh, and then also in their dynamic hyperinflation as measured on the ventilator as well. So all three patients by and large improved um, in this particular case series. The next one I think is a little bit more uh, interesting um, and put some hard numbers to it. So this is out of University of Washington and the associated VA uh, up there, um, which sort of fits why there's you know virtually all men uh, and all smokers in their uh, cohort that they looked at. However, these are not patients that all had a known diagnosis of COPD by PFTs or in status asthmaticus or anything like that. These are random, seemingly bored vets that volunteered for this study to be intubated. Um, and what they did was they uh, intubated them for 30 minutes and they were all exposed to one of the four groups here of an inhaled uh, gas. So they compared basically, they wanted to look at, so their premise was we know the gases make a difference, we want to see which one has a bigger difference. And the rationale behind why they thought they would even see a difference in someone who's not in having an acute exacerbation was that um, intubation in and of itself may induce some degree of bronchospasm, and so they thought they would actually see a difference independent of whether patients were in extremis prior to intubation. But they didn't give a provocation? No provocation of any kind other than sticking plastic in their throat. That was it. Yeah, They didn't give anything else, no other drug. So this is the, the data that they received. So again, it was a 30-minute um, intubated session. Um, the biggest reduction in respiratory system resistance was actually with sevoflurane, uh, and then iso and halothane were essentially equivalent without pentol, no difference at all. Um, all of these patients, which there were um, a fair number of here, you can see sort of in the teens, um, in their, or, you know, 40 to 50 patients, I believe, in total. All of them did great, essentially, no complications, and they concluded that these gases are safe when used with anesthesiologists, which are awesome, and so that's why they basically said that these gases are fine to use as long as we are using them and no one else was their conclusion. They really did talk themselves up in the discussion. Um, so, um, yeah. um, so uh, there's one last paper that I just want to discuss briefly. So this is a pediatric ICU. Um, in, at Vanderbilt, uh, they had 10 kids, uh, and it was a retrospective case series of kids that were admitted for status asthmaticus and exposed to isoflurane. So all were, and this is a relatively recent paper, 2006, so it's a little bit more uh, applicable to some of the uh, ventilation, ventilator settings that we use nowadays. So PRVC, 5 to 8 cc's per kilo, that doesn't sound uh, too uh, exotic. Uh, long E time and low vent rates, all were already on a methylxanthine infusion inhaled beta agonists, IV steroids, MAG, paralytics, sounding familiar, plus or minus ketamine, um, pH, so acidemic still, PCO2 greater than 80, or peak pressure greater than 45, um, which is sort of the numbers that I tend to see more than that 75 peak pressure that we saw earlier. Uh, then they were uh, put on isoflurane at that point and weaned when they no longer met that criteria. And this paper essentially mimics the one that I showed earlier. Fairly sizable reduction 
in the PCO2 from 77 down to 58 after two hours, and a, and a meaningful, at least in their mind, improvement in the pH from 716 to 724, which is essentially what they were looking for. All the patients did well, um, no adverse events associated with the gases. That said, again, there's not a lot of large uh, data out there to make strong recommendations, so GINA makes none. ATS states inhaled anesthetic agents might be useful because of their potent bronchodilatory effect and their ability to decrease airway responsiveness. As best I can tell, they didn't grade this statement. It's sort of just a general statement that was buried. So last but not least, and partly what triggered this entire talk, um, I saved this for last because I, I imagine that it would spark the most controversy and so I didn't want it to derail things in the beginning, um, uh, despite Dr. Cowan's best efforts. Uh, <clears throat> so, <laughs> um, so, um, so, with, uh, so, I'm, so specifically for extracorporeal CO2 removal. So, so when we walk into an ECMO or patient being ECMO'd, um, you know, there's a large uh, sort of set of devices, actually, they're all attached on one cart, a lot of tubes, a lot of large tubes, 30 French and such, um, with long extracorporeal circuits, and they have a perfusionist sitting at the bedside, and the room's just extremely busy. Um, ECOR in and of itself does not require a, a pump, and so these circuits can actually be done, driven by the patient's endogenous cardiac output uh, in the right setting. And so with that in mind, that's sort of what I'm going to talk a little bit about here and just kind of introduce the concept. So it can actually be done with our dialysis size catheters. Uh, they can be pumpless with a small extracorporeal circuit. I'll show an example picture here in a second. So they don't need a perfusionist, blood warming, all of this sort of stuff that comes along to sort of make that uh, uh, ECMO circuit more complicated. You can actually f control the flow just with clamps, literally clamps on the tubing. Um, and the anticoagulation targets, because of the, the less amount of equipment essentially involved, um, typically can be targeted at a lower uh, degree of anticoagulation. These are some names of systems that were sort of came up in the midst of my uh, re uh, literature review. Uh, a lot of these companies are actually trialing their devices in sort of small pilot studies, and that's why they all have different names for this stuff. And so a lot of the data actually out there is pilot study stuff. Um, the military is actually using a fair, or, um, you know, piloting a fair amount of it, uh, more for trauma and field insertion of these devices to try and see if they can help salvage trauma cases like battle battlefield cases. This is an example of a circuit. This is it. Um, you have your arterial access, your venous access, your CO2 scrubber, uh, and that's the entirety of the circuit right there. So it doesn't take a whole lot of equipment. Um, and again, the, the arterial and venous catheters can be fairly small compared to their ECMO counterparts. Just like a power Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Uh, so the, so the, the one trial that actually is the largest prospective randomized trial with the use of, of ECMO and hypercapnic respiratory failure uh, turns out to be the CSER trial. Uh, we all think of it, and it rightfully so, as an ARDS or hypoxic respiratory failure trial. And that's because 98, or excuse me, 95% of the patients were um, for a hypoxic respiratory failure. But 5% of them actually were for refractory hypercapnia. And so asthma, COPD sort of fall into that bucket. And so that's why I'm going to talk about that here. And we all know this trial by now. I'm not going to go through it in excruciating detail. Um, but basically, um, oh, it was a one ECMO center uh, involvement with 92 conventional treatment centers. So a lot of conventional treatment centers were involved in the study and a couple other referral hospitals that sent their patients either to the ECMO center or the conventional treatment centers. The inclusion criteria were basically adults. Uh, Murray score is a measure of badness in hypoxic respiratory failure as PDAF ratio, number of quadrants involved on the chest X-ray, um, PEEP, and 
um, excuse me, and I forget the fourth one, but basically it was a measure of, of, of how bad off the patient was from a number of metrics, and three or higher uh, met their criteria for inclusion in the trial. And then uncompensated hypercapnia with the, the British spelling was a pH of less than 7.2 despite optimum conventional treatment. And what that optimum conventional treatment was, we have no idea because there were 93 hospitals involved and none of them could come to an agreement. I'll talk about that at the end. So um, their hypothesis was that ECMO would save lives and be cost effective uh, and their primary outcomes were death or severe disability at six months and, and duration of mechanical ventilation, ICU, and hospital length of stay as secondary outcomes. About 60% were male. All of them were pretty young uh, for that matter. And again, 95% for hypoxia and 5% for hypercapnia. So the only reason I bring this slide up, because I don't want to go through the whole trial, uh, was that even with that 5%, that still leaves you with nine patients that were allocated based on hypercapnia. And so that nine patients in a randomized prospective trial is still the largest thing that's out there for ECMO in hypercapnia. Um, the, the big knock against this, or the, the critique against this, there's a number of them, is this box here, which is that of the 90 patients assigned to, for ECMO consideration, only three quarters of them actually got ECMO. The other quarter uh, either died en route or died before they got there, or improved, frankly, once they got there, they just started doing what they considered to be conventional treatment and the patients got better uh, before they actually got um, hooked up to the circuit. This is their mortality chart. Uh, so the ECMO arm, so if you were randomized to the ECMO center, I should say, not necessarily that you got ECMO, your mortality was improved compared to the conventional treatment uh, care provided in the other two 92 hospitals. The ECMO group had a much longer, about double critical care days and double the hospital days. <clears throat> and the footnotes, and, and this is mostly just for your entertainment or amusement because, and I'm going to let you guys draw your own parallels between these statements applying to the great University of Maryland and, and then the other centers that are listening to this someday. Um, so the, uh, the, regarding no mandated event protocol in the conventional arm, so, and these are direct quotes from the paper, there is an inability of participating units to reach a consensus on best treatment. That's a day-to-day -day occurrence in my life. Um, we consider, and this is my favorite, we consider transferring patients from both uh, arms to the ECMO unit, but the other participating units did not judge the ECMO unit to be competent providers of conventional management or intensive care and were concerned about bias. I just thought that was like so insulting. Like, how did they write that in their own paper? Right? It made me wonder if the primary author was worked in one of the other facilities and just was, I don't know, taking the last stat. I don't know how it got through the editors, but anyway. Um, so it seemed just awfully passive-aggressive. Um, so the conclusions, again, so it's a small N for hypercapnic patients, nine, but again, it's still the largest one out there. Um, there was no subgroup analysis, unfortunately, for the particular cohort that we are interested in here today. I would have been, uh, it would have been neat to see that, I think, even with small numbers. Um, and then, again, we have no clue what their conventional treatment was. So whether they were getting ketamine, heliox, all these other things that we're talking about today, no mention of it. And I'm going to close with this, which I think is sort of an interesting, uh, sort of what might the future hold kind of paper. So this was published in 2015 out of Critical Care Medicine, and it was entitled Extracorporeal CO2 Removal, or ECOR, in Hypercapnic Patients at Risk of Non-Invasive Failure, a Matched Cohort Study with Historical Control, so two Italian ICUs. Recruited patients that ran the gamut of adult ages, uh, hypercapnic respiratory failure due to COPD exacerbations on non-invasive in the emergency room. 25 patients, they just enrolled continuously, 25 patients received extracorporeal CO2 removal, and they compared them to 20 matched cohorts in historical controls based on sort of previous studies they had done. 
They excluded them if they were hypotensive because they didn't want to hook them up to an extracorporeal circuit if they were already hypotensive. Any contraindication to heparinization in that list was a mile long for them. And anyone that was morbidly obese that might add to their complication rates of vascular access. So they qualified for ECOR uh, after two hours of non-invasive when they were still acidemic. Their PCO2 is greater than 20% above a known baseline and they were tachypnic greater than 30. And ECOR was stopped uh, after those parameters improved, essentially. So the primary outcome was prevalence of intubation over their entire ICU length of stay. And once they were put on ECOR, the decision to intubate was made by non-trial participating physicians. So it's just the care team made their decision to intubate independent of whether or not this machine is sitting here, maybe. Um, and then uh, they used this criteria here. I'll, I'll show you why I think that might be different here in a second. Um, <clears throat> so, and uh, if they met any of the following for at least two hours, um, so uh, including arrest, I thought it was interesting for at least two hours. Did they have to arrest for two hours before they hooked them up to eat? I don't know. Um, and then uh, their secondary outcomes are listed below. And this is what they found, and I found it to be pretty striking. So over the 28-day uh, or ICU length of stay, they had a significant reduction in the incidence of intubation in these patients, so 12% versus 33% hooking them up to this ECOR circuit. What they found that they probably weren't uh, powered to do uh, was hospital mortality. Um, so they had 35% of their patients that got put on non-invasive for COPD exacerbation die in the hospital, which I just found to be an astronomical number um, compared to this 8%. So, so yeah, they found a statistical significance improvement in mortality, but it makes you wonder, like, were they just sitting there staring at the ECOR machine going, you know, you can hold out a little longer, like, I don't want to screw, I don't know. I'm re maybe reading too much into it, but it seems like 35% mortality in, in the non-invasive ventilation for COPD seemed rather high to me. And there was no difference in ICU or hospital length of stay. There was, however, a, a number of complications that occluded with hooking these people up to the ECOR circuit. Now, the numbers are slightly inflated because nine of which were clots and pump malfunction that were just simply fixed by changing the circuit. But they did have four major bleeds, and uh, one of which included uh, requiring vascular surgery emergently. So four in 25 is still a high number of complications for this. So, so probably not yet ready for prime time, still some work to do, but still kind of interesting to think about and trying to stave off intubation for these patients. So to go, um, IV epinephrine, old treatment, um, not really a whole great body of literature around it, um, especially in the era of inhaled beta agonist activity. Um, the alpha agonist activity may not be worth it in terms of the cerebrovascular and the cardiovascular complications. Heliox um, may play a role in the pre-intubation, intubated patients, not really as best I can sort of um, discover any real benefit in the intubated patients, because um, again, their work of breathing should already be nil if you're already paralyzing them and intubating them. Ketamine has not panned out in the prospective literature done in the emergency room. There's actually a fair amount of literature out there about this in prospective randomized fashion that it doesn't seem to help. Um, ECMO and ECOR, this may be something to see in the future. I'm sure more of this will be done in evaluating for this. And the inhaled anesthetics seem to have the most consistent set of data out there, albeit always single center stuff um, that there may be of benefit there. But again, the logistical challenges of getting this a patient hooked up on this seems to be the limiting factor uh, I would imagine in most places, and I can imagine here as well. That's it. That's all I got. So the, the kind of comment to make about Heliox is, I think we probably don't administer it the way that we're supposed to. So 
when I, I remember learning about Heliox in residency, and I thought it was really cool. But the more I read about it, when you give this non-invasively, you're supposed to give it with a tight-fitting mask, like a BiPAP mask, so that you don't get any of the extra Nitrogen air Because right? yeah. the whole point is to, pin, to get the greatest concentration of helium that you can. Yeah. And so I feel like every single hospital that I've worked in where I've asked for Heliox, it comes out with you know, a non-tight-fitting face yeah. mask. And so I don't know how much of it we actually lose when we don't have that seal. Yeah. Um, but, um, and... So, so we, I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. but... Um, that becomes a cost problem. Mm -hmm. So you would have to bring in tanker trucks to run a high flow heliox to manage if somebody's, let's say, their inventory flow rates 600 liters or, you know, uh, that would. Would As opposed to a tank, I see what you mean. You would, what's that? To have it that's you actually have pressurized? Or, yeah. And then you want them to breathe in just pure heliox? You would have to have a huge. I see flow. what you mean. Yeah. You would drain your what is it, an H tank? Yeah. You would drain that H tank about every thirty minutes, and then you couldn't keep up with yeah. it. Which I is expensive to begin with, right? Yeah. Just yeah. I'm just saying, it's just practically crazy. speaking, it's almost impossible to do that. The other stupid thing, and I maybe jump into your uh, people then start bleeding in an oxygen when they have. <laughs> when they have uh, hypoxia. Right, yeah. but you can't do this on a hypoxic patient. Yeah, exactly, because yeah. the viscosity of oxygen is actually worse, and you're getting no benefit, but you're sure spending a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> so it like really has a role in someone who is not hypoxic. But I think that it, you probably could get some benefit from just kind of a theoretical basis, but the way we deliver it, maybe we're not able to achieve that total target. Yeah. But the financial aspect too, I mean, that's that's applicable to any of the inhaled gases that we start talking about. Really. So, yeah, uh, Horowitz, I think, this guy really did it. But anyhow, they showed no benefit. They yeah. were really surprised. They were yeah. really, this is great stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't pull any of them specifically for this, but everything I found in the mild to moderate exacerbation didn't suggest any, any yeah. benefit. So, yeah. Financially. Yeah. But when you're using the video, nearly all the time, it means that it's an athletic through the pen circuit. Unfortunately, it happens at Midtown is they use marijuana, they come with the most severe bronchospasms we've had. And I think Ellen also had a patient this weekend. It's, I've had peak airway pressures of the 70. I mean, you can't use, there is no way you can get anesthesia to bring in anything there. So you use yeah. it, I've had benefit. I mean, you, of course, put the kitchen sink at them and everything else sure. too, but I've, I've, I have noticed a difference in these patients, so I'm not sure that they have looked at it in that yeah. measure too and and or maybe we have a very genetically prone population just because everything else they do here, you know. But it may be interesting to see in the ventilator circuit what it does, like yeah. with different flows. Yeah, most of, of what I talked about today is not in the mechanically ventilated patients just because, you know, you're already weeding out a select group of patients. Um, by the time they get out of the emergency room with a breathing tube, and so enrolling numbers that are meaningful once you get onto the, you know, the ventilator, which in theory the ventilator in and of itself and some some of the more 
basic, if you want to call it basic things that we do, which I didn't talk about today, paralysis and all that stuff, typically will cut it. Um, and then when it doesn't, you run into that one in a hundred or whatever it is that you're not, and then, I don't know, it gets more challenging. So. I remember in one of the studies about Helios, they talked about while they couldn't necessarily demonstrate some of the significant reductions in airways resistance that they thought they would be able to, and I don't know if it was just because they weren't measuring at the time. I remember them specifically saying that the patients who got Heliox compared to those who did not had all, all of whom received bronchodilators um, had significantly increased heart rates and so they deduced that there was better systemic absorption of the bronchodilators because the heart rates were yeah, the heart rate went up. Interesting. because they were getting all these beta agents yeah. so yeah, and it, that's not a and, Teflon particle but yeah. <laughs> well and, and that may be you know so the argument about drug deposition I, I don't know that it's necessarily saying that you're not depositing the drug it's just a matter of okay it's where is it depositing I mean because it hasn't been you know um, uh, reproduced I guess on a, on a meaningful sort of scale that it's always in the distal airways which is what we're in theory trying to target so it may just be deposit wherever I mean you throw more drugs at it maybe it'll go in but um, so but they may be absorbing and it may just be in their larynx I don't know I'd, but uh, it's going somewhere has anybody here ever used GA in the setting of this institution? No, I've heard it talked about a couple times on patients that you know we are always like how you know in the early throes of it, but I've never pulled the trigger on it here. I don't know if anyone has yeah. Christiana. Yeah. I mean, when the asthmatic hits the door in the ER, they should walk out of the hospital without. I mean, you buy a couple of days for the stills, so it's all sort of. You know, prevent the cardio, managing your you know, going slow, and tolerate high pressures, and they all walk out. So it's really hard to do studies, I think, on, on this. Well, I think you have to really decide what's going to kill this patient. Right? So I, I've participated in, I think, four times using isofluorine, which is why I know the scavenging of the exhaled gas yeah. is the biggest challenge. And if they don't bring up the right kettle, and you have to put suction in, you have to make sure they're not recirculating the air in the ICU. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. Having said that, it's pretty impressive. They get better with isofluorine. But if you actually look at why these people die, um, we probably kill them with kindness. So you put them on an epidrip, you get the heart rates up to 160, and then you let them get a little hypoxic. As long as you, they're not hypoxic, you can let their CO2s get pretty high. Nobody dies from acidosis. I know that's an anathema. Uh, but, you know, you, their pH of 7.1, they're not going to die. And Mark just I'm said... Used to that. You use that I don't use that. I'm, I'm, never, I'm just saying, if you look at the papers where people die, they have all these high epidrip rates and everything like that. The other thing is, I was surprised your pathology was, there are papers that show it's all polys. It's not years. Yeah. And uh, this acutely, probably, yeah, right. yeah, explosive <laughs> asthma is probably not an EO-driven disease. Yeah. It's probably a poly-driven disease, and nobody really understands the immunology. But we get we get so hyped on correcting abnormal numbers, and I don't care if their PCO2 is 120 as long as they're on the CNS problem. As long as you can oxidate them, <laughs> they will get better. 
So yeah. don't kill them with over. Well, I, I just I wonder about. So back to your comment about the blood gas. Like I don't know. I mean, obviously, that some one of those numbers isn't accurate. But but I wonder about what they tried to do in that one to two hour time frame where that blood gas got significantly worse. I mean, they probably were were you know increasing the respiratory rate or tidal, whatever it was. You know that had a, a you know the opposite effect of what they were looking oh, for. Thank you, guys. Any questions?